If you have your Bibles, open them to Leviticus chapter 20. I'll also be referencing Hebrews chapter 12 in the course of the sermon. And a message entitled, Living as a Holy People, Embracing God's Call to Holiness. So, okay, we've moved out of Exodus and all of those meticulous details about the tabernacle and and we dove right into more painstaking details about things clean and unclean, about illicit relationships, about burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. And you might have thought, Pastor, can't we just skip Leviticus? And I get it. I bet a lot of folks have asked that question. I bet a lot of folks do skip Leviticus. So yes, we've read these chapters, and some of the things God commanded of the Israelites did seem strange, right? So, so why do we bother reading Leviticus? Why even try to understand what Leviticus has to say to us? Would it surprise you to know that in this book of 27 chapters, there's more direct speech by God Himself than in any other book of the Bible? Why read Leviticus with all those confusing and, and seemingly ridiculous laws? Because Leviticus tells us New Testament Christians how to appreciate and appropriate holiness in our everyday lives. We mustn't lose sight of the overarching principle of Leviticus, what's behind those strange commands and seemingly bizarre restrictions. They teach us that the people of God stay in right relationship with the Holy God when they live by the precepts and rules and commands that He has established. Let's read Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things. And therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Please be seated. So the word holy is used 91 times in the book of Leviticus. Words connected with cleansing is used 70 one times references to uncleanness number 128 times there's just no argument about what this book is about no question and beloved the spiritual principles in Leviticus do have relevance for our lives today the key verse again be holy for I am holy was applied to the New Testament church in first Peter chapter 1 but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The book of Leviticus itself is quoted or referenced over a hundred times 
in the New Testament. And since we know that all Scripture is given by God, given by God as an inspiration to the writers, it's profitable for God's people to use in developing godly lives. And since we know that Jesus said we should live by every word, right, that God has given us, that includes which book? Leviticus. Let's talk about the priority of holiness. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, He that sees the beauty of holiness sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. Beloved, do you think of personal holiness, likeness to Jesus Christ, as the greatest and most important thing in your world? Clearly across the board in the Christian faith, not as many of us do as ought to. Kevin DeYoung, popular pastor, author, and theologian, issues a stinging indictment of the church today. He states that there is a hole in our holiness, and that hole, listen, is that we don't really care that much about it. Somebody say, oh me. Across the landscape of the American church, fewer and fewer pastors are passionately encouraging and preaching gospel-driven holiness in our churches. It's not so much that sin is not brought up. It's not so much that righteous behavior is not encouraged. But too many sermons and too much teaching in the church today has slipped into what are basically self-help seminars on how to make your dollar go further or how to be a better parent or how to become a better you. All topics worthy of consideration, but in my humble opinion, not appropriate topics for Sunday morning worship. They're helpful. They're not helpful in light of the eternal. Our messages must always be gospel-centric. That is to say, they must always point listeners to the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. You often hear me say, and you're tired of hearing it, we're going to be right and we're going to do right. But beloved, living right and doing right mean nothing apart from Christ. The young reminds us, any gospel which speaks only what you must do and never announces what Christ has done is no gospel at all. Now, I'm not saying that we need to come in here every Sunday and get beat up because we're driving a new car or because we love to watch a certain crime drama on television. I am saying that too many Christians have failed to take seriously one of the great purposes for which Christ redeemed us in the first place and one of the essential evidences for eternal life, our personal holiness. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century bishop of Liverpool, was right when he said, we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. What concerns many today is that we celebrate, and we should celebrate, and that we rejoice, and we should rejoice in what Christ has saved us from, but are we giving proper consideration and focused effort toward what Christ has saved us for? We say we're passionate about the gospel. 
We say we, we dedicate our lives to see God glorified. Then we should, should we not also be dedicated to and passionate about and purposeful in our pursuit of personal holiness? Is the young right? Is there a holiness, a hole in our holiness? And is, is it that we don't care very much about holiness? And you're saying, well, preacher, you're, you're being awful hard on the church. How do you know? How do you know there's some kind of hole in our holiness? Let me take a page out of our Savior's book and answer that question with a question. Would you say that across the board in our nation today, that the church, the general church, is known for its obedience? Let me bring it on home. Is our church, is Richland Baptist Church, known in this community for its commitment to obedience? The Apostle Paul, in commending the church in Rome, wrote in chapter 16, verse 9, Your obedience is known to all. What a wonderful thing to say about a church. What a wonderful thing for a church to be known for. Is obedience what our church is known for? Is that what other, Christ, other citizens, other people in the community, or even other Christians, think about when they look at our individual lives? Is that even what you and I want to be known for? It's not a great revelation for me to point out to you that happiness, not holiness, is the primary pursuit of most folks today, and that includes far too many professed Christians. Too many folks want Jesus to solve their problems and carry their burdens, but they aren't very interested in Him doing anything to change their character or challenge their convictions. Too many folks are not sufficiently disturbed by the fact that eight times in the Bible, God says to his people, says to us, be holy for I am holy. Too many folks do not seem to realize that when God said that, he meant that. Let me ask another question as we consider the state of holiness in today's church. When we think about heaven, do we think of heaven as a holy place. There's, there's no better passage for giving us a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth than Revelation chapter 21. What we see there is that the new Jerusalem is glorious. It shines with the, with the radiance of God's presence. The new Jerusalem is, 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 is peaceful. It's, there's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's no more chaos. There's no more conflict because all of our foes have been defeated but most importantly for our purposes, the new Jerusalem is holy. Now, not only is the bride, has the bride been purified, but here's an interesting thing. The very dimensions of the new Jerusalem seem to suggest that it's a reconstituting of the holy of holies. That is, height, length, and width are of equal dimensions. The new Jerusalem, 1,500.3 miles, length, height, and width. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. When it comes to what happens after we die in the idea of heaven, a lot of folks like to speak about God's unconditional love and universal acceptance. You know, God loves everybody, and most everybody apart from the very worst of us is going to go to heaven when they die. But the truth is that God's love is a holy love. And heaven is an utterly holy place. And heaven is for those who have overcome. 
For those whose faith in Jesus Christ has remained steadfast until the end. For those who do not compromise their faith. Revelation 21.8 goes on to say, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake, of, lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But no matter what you profess, if you continually show disregard for Christ by habitually giving yourself over to sin without godly sorrow, with no genuine repentance, then heaven is not your home. Do you ever wonder why so many Christians, so many churches are caving on the issues of homosexuality, transgenderism, and same-sex marriage, among other things. The list is long. And no doubt the desire to be acceptable to the culture is a huge part of that. But more than that, our failure to, to fully comprehend and our willingness to, unwillingness uh, to believe what Scripture has to say about the holiness of heaven is another major factor. If heaven is a place where most people go when they die, I mean, if you're just a decent person, you're in... Why would anyone think it's a big deal about homosexuality or same-sex marriage or transgenderism here on earth? Many Christians have never been taught that sorcerers and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood will be left outside the gates of heaven. So they're devoid of the courage, or really we might say of the compassion, if you think about it, to say that the unrepentantly sexually immoral will not be welcomed in either but that's exactly what Revelation 21 and 22 teaches because God's new world is free from every stain or hint of sin it's, it's hard to imagine how one could enjoy heaven without holiness as J.C. Ryle reminds us heaven is a holy place the Lord of heaven is a holy God the angels are holy creatures. The inhabitants are holy saints. Holiness is written on everything in heaven, and nothing unholy can enter into this heaven. Even if you could, he goes on, enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? He concludes, if ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? You would not be happy there if you are not holy here. Or Spurgeon puts it, sooner would a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. Or as D.A. Carson writes, God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. He more greatly delights in the integrity and purity of His church than in the material well-being of its members. He shows Himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy Him and obey Him than to many women whose horizons revolve around good jobs, nice houses, and reasonable health. As Warren Wearsby writes, in God's kingdom, holiness isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. 
As the writer of Hebrew puts, us, puts it, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Beloved, never doubt that God wants you. He wants His children to live happily. But He knows something. He knows that our genuine happiness has its roots in our personal holiness. In this part of Leviticus chapter 20, God is giving very special attention to the connection between the, the obedience of the Israelites and the occupation of the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, which He had promised them. And we need to see that this part of the text connects with earlier chapters 17, 18, and 19. You see, if the Israelites failed to obey God, that would put them in the position of being detested by God. Look at verse 23. Just as he had detested the Canaanites for their practices. Verse 21 tells us that the very land itself would not be able to tolerate disobedience. It would vomit Israel from the land. Because God is the one giving them the land, He tells them, once again, that they must be different. They must be unique from the nations surrounding them. Part of that difference was wrapped up in their ability to distinguish between clean and unclean, which is what chapters 11 through 15 are all about. The point that God is making here to His people and the, and the principle that's relevant for you and me today is that by observing the differences the, the, He outlines in Leviticus, the Israelites are imitating Him. They're becoming holy. God was insisting that His people be uniquely different from the nations surrounding them. Moral laws and dietary laws and laws dealing with what was clean and unclean all were designed to set His people apart as distinct from other nations. Now for context... We need to remember that at this point in their history, Israel was a theocracy. It was directly under God's government, collectively subject to living strictly according to the rules, the laws that God had established. Israel was not a democracy. Unlike our culture today, there was not some kind of smorgasbord of religious and political and, and ethical views from which people could fill their plate. No, there was, there was one law given by God to be obeyed, and it arose from one central source of authority, God Himself. And the people of Israel knew what was expected of them. They knew that they were to obey His laws. And it made sense to them that a disobedience to His laws should be punished and sometimes severely punished. Holiness is about commitment. We see in these chapters that holiness is not only important for God's people, it is essential. Holiness is about commitment to obedience. Holiness doesn't just happen. It's not some warm and, and fuzzy sense of piety that we get when we feel like we're, we've been particularly good for a season. It comes over time as we regularly and reflexively think and act in ways that refute a, a, a habitual lifestyle of sin. It was for the Israelites, and it is for us today. Again, God repeatedly tells us in the Bible to be holy, for I am holy. Clearly, it's important to Him that we be holy. 
But for us, God is perfect. God is infinitely pure, and we are human. We're sinful by nature. How can we ever hope to be holy ourselves? And what does that even look like? Simply put, at the risk of oversimplification, being holy means to live our lives in a way that reflects God's glory rather than conforming to the ways of the world. Romans 12, right? 1 and 2. It means that we need to abide by the rules and obey the commands that God has laid down for us in Holy Scripture. It requires us to commit ourselves, to to draw near to God and to flee and to remain far away from everything that offends Him. And sure, it takes discipline to do this. It's not easy. But we can trust that the instructions God has given us in the Bible are there to help us, to protect us. So obedience is the key. Look at verses 8 and 22 in chapter 20. Keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Obedience is the key. And then holiness is about a commitment to separation. Look at verses 8, verse 23, verse 26. God is calling His people. God is calling us, and I'll paraphrase, to set ourselves apart for a holy life, to live a a holy life because I'm your God. Do what I tell you. Live the way I tell you. I'm the God who makes you holy. I've distinguished you from the nations to be my very own. Much of the behavior that God was warning His people against, laying out specific punishments for if they disobeyed, were behaviors that were a normal part of the lives and the worship of the people that occupied the land before they got there, of Israel's neighbors. Listen, beloved, the reason why God issued these commands that we might see as bizarre, these restrictions we might see as strange, was because the people occupying the land He had given to Israel had been doing those kind of things for 400 years. He'd given them enough time. God prohibited these practices because to begin with, they were wrong, but also because they were distinctive of the pagan culture that God wanted His people to avoid. So the people were told, verse 23, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. Being holy still means living in a manner that's countercultural. To, to live in a manner that distinguishes us from the norms of the lives of the people around us, living a distinctly different lifestyle from those who are either ignorant of or living in open defiance of the revealed will of God. God is not calling us to be cool or to conform or to be conventional, but to commit and consecrate ourselves to Him, which will result in us living the best life for Him. And listen, the reason He calls us to be set apart is a positive one, not a negative one. God calls us to be set apart because we belong to Him. Say we belong to Him. God calls us to live a, a uniquely different lifestyle from the world around us because we enjoy a uniquely special relationship with Him. I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. Holiness is about commitment to obedience. Holiness is about commitment to separation, and holiness is about commitment to sanctification. Look at verse 8. God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That is, I am the one who makes you holy. God is the one who initiates. God is the the driver. He's the one who will one day complete the process of making us holy. 
When the Israelites obeyed God, they, they were blessed with the presence of God, an overwhelming presence of God in their midst, and their fellowship with Him was strengthened mightily. And they made a, as they made a practice over time to continue to draw close to Him, they naturally became more like Him and less like their idolatrous neighbors. Beloved, God is still in the transformation business. And much as ever, He desires to transform our lives into His likeness by His Holy Spirit. But He brings about that transformation over time in the lives of the obedient. The great 16th century Puritan theologian John Owen wrote, The growth of trees and plants takes place so slowly that it is not easily seen. Daily we notice a little change, but in the course of time we see that a great change has taken place. So it is with grace. Sanctification is a progressive, lifelong work. It is an amazing work of God's grace, and it is a work to be prayed for. Commitment to obedience, to separation, to sanctification, and then holiness is about commitment to purity. Look at verse 25. Allow me to paraphrase again, if you would. Distinguish between ritually clean and unclean animals and birds. Don't pollute yourself with any animal or bird or crawling thing which I have marked out as unclean for you. Live holy lives before me because I, God, am holy. I have distinguished you from the other nations to be my very own. Now, some of you might be thinking, why insert a verse here about clean and unclean animals, for goodness sake? It seems like it kind of breaks the the flow of the text, like it's, it's not connected to the subject matter. But what we need to see here is how this verse points us to the breadth and the depth of the holiness of, that God demands in our lives. Holiness is not just about being spiritual. It's not just about being a, a moral person. Those are important, but this verse shows us that God calls us to complete faithfulness in every area of our lives. And calls us to, to live with purity in every area of our lives. So there's a commitment to obedience, to separation, to sanctification, to purity. And then holiness is about commitment to imitation. Look at verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy. Beloved, the bottom line of holiness is that when people look at our lives they ought to see something of the purity and character of a holy God. God the Father gave us the ultimate example to follow in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And listen, I get that trying to figure out how to live life based on a, on a, on a holy, almighty God whose glory is beyond our imagination, whose majesty is more awesome than the whole of the universe and the billions of galaxies that, that make it up. That can be difficult. But listen, in the life of Christ, as revealed in Scripture, we have the perf perfect, practical example of how a person should live on earth. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we look to Christ, we learn that we're to walk in love. As we look to Christ, we, we, we learn that we're to give sacrificially to others. As we look to Christ, we learn that we're to offer ourselves fully as a sacrifice to God. Now, we, we can't look at this part of the penal code of Israel and come away with any wisdom about the, the judicial penalties for our day, but that doesn't mean the text lacks relevance for us. 
The underlying theological principle shows us how anything less then wholehearted devotion to the God of the Bible has, does, and always will lead to people living beneath the level that God desires for them. It shows us that steadfast devotion and obedience to God leads to joyful and holy living. It gives us a peek into God, how God administers His divine justice. And it lays out a morality revealing that we, God's people, are still required to live holy lives. So we must face our responsibility, beloved. We must strive to live holy lives. To be holy because He's holy. And ought to give us great joy to realize that no matter how often we fail, atonement has been made. And we have a Father who forgives. Say we have a Father who forgives. Beloved, that's grace. And thank God for grace. Amen? But, listen, you and I must face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often I fear we say, oh, I'm just defeated, Pastor, by this sin. But really now, is it that we're defeated? Or is it that we're simply being disobedient? Maybe we should stop using words like victory and defeat to define our headway toward holiness. In their place, maybe we should use words like obedience and disobedience. You see, when we say we're defeated by some sin, whether we realize it or not, we're avoiding our responsibility. We're declaring that something outside of us has defeated us. But when we admit to disobedience, the responsibility for the sin falls on us. But we may be defeated from time to time by some besetting sin, but more often than not, the reason we're defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We've chosen to linger on those lustful thoughts. We've chosen to cuddle up with bitterness or anger or jealousy. We've chosen to tell just a little white lie, to bend the truth just a little, to not tell the whole story. We've confused and excused sex outside of biblical marriage by calling it love. And little by little, bite by bite, we, we fed the monster that is the sin with which we have so long struggled. And bit by bit, we're drawn further and further away from a holy walk with a holy God. Beloved, we need to face up to the facts and accept the truth that we're responsible for our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. We need to rely on the truth that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ and all His power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work within us. It's only as we accept our responsibility and avail ourselves of God's help that we'll make any progress in the pursuit of personal holiness. Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century Scottish preacher, died at the tender age of 29, but was a brilliant man wrote something that struck home with me. It's on a short list after Scripture of things that have impacted me. He said, he's a pastor, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. The 
McShane understood that the, the crucial need for character and clergy. And there are a lot of books out there that tout pastors being culturally relevant and, and highly relational. Those are the keys to successful pastoral ministry and to church growth. And listen, those are not unimportant. But I believe the truth is that church members, you, not to mention a lost and dying world, need pastors who walk closely with a holy God. More than they need anything else. But listen, it's not just true of your pastor. It's true for you as a mother or father, a brother, a sister, a child, a grandparent, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a neighbor, an employee, your friends and family, your colleagues and your children. They don't need you to work miracles. They don't need you to solve all the problems. They don't need you to single-handedly transform civilization. They need you to be holy. As Horatius Bonar, another Scottish preacher and friend of McShane, writes, Holiness is not measured by one great heroic act or, or mighty martyrdom. It is of small things that a great life is made up. But holiness is, is, is a million small things. The avoidance of small faults and small foibles. The prevention of small lapses into worldliness and self-centeredness of small betrayals and small acts of compromise. The putting to death of small inconsistencies and small indiscretions. The proper attention to small duties and small dealings. The hard work of small self-denials and small self-disciplines. The cultivation of small kindnesses and small mercies. Beloved, are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you generous? Are you forgiving? Are you joyful? Are you loving? These qualities demonstrated in all of the small stuff in the small areas of life define whether you and I are among those who bear the burdens are those who add to the load of everyone around us. They determine whether we're a light shining into the darkness pointing others to Christ or whether we're a stain on the church which gives the lost people in our world another reason to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church for which His Son bled and died. The vast majority of the people in our world, they, they cannot see past the surface. The only thing that matters to them is how people look on the outside, how attractive a person is or is not. That's the message of the world. It's all about outward appearance, and it's had its effect. Many of us are more driven by appearance than we'd like to admit that we are. But, but what is beauty? What is real beauty? What or who has a look worth imitating? Paul writes in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Beloved, it is holiness that God is looking for. 
The attractive Christian is the one who's maturing as the Spirit works in them to conform them to the likeness of Christ. Beloved, God wants you to be holy. Say, God wants me to be holy. Through your faith in Christ, you are already counted as holy in Christ. But going forward, His plan is to make you holy with Christ. There's no plan B. This is not a short-term contract. This is a lifetime commitment. And, and this matters immensely more than you and I imagine that it matters. Charles Spurgeon wrote, If God gives you the grace to make you believe, He will give you the grace to live a holy life afterward. A.W. Tozier wrote, We must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in His Son while He disciplines and chastens and purges us that we may be partakers of His holiness. Beloved, God is in the business of sanctifying you and me, His people to make us clean and beautiful on the inside. Count on this, church family. Our Father will have a spotless bride. Let's wrap it up. There's a movie several years ago now called Red Tails. It tells a dramatic story of the first unit of all black fighter pilots in World War II. Their motto was, From the last plane... To the last minute, to the last bullet, to the last man, we fight, we fight, we fight. This was a critical life and death struggle, and we're grateful for their sacrifice as we are for all those who served and sacrificed. But beloved, I want to tell you the, the struggle for holiness is like that, and that it is a battle. It is a fight. And the one that we must begin to see is critical. And with no less determination and with no less willingness to sacrifice, we must commit and consecrate ourselves to fight for holiness, to fight for righteousness, to fight for obedience. Anything less than all-out warfare against sin in our lives will result in a life that does not, that cannot glorify the Father through its holiness. Anything less, and the result will be a church that does not, that cannot have the power to impact the world that God purposes and desires for it to have. On Sunday morning, January the 24th, dead and unholy the worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon it by an unholy church 
Beloved, I began this message by asking you how important was personal holiness to you. I ask you if personal holiness, likeness to Jesus Christ, was the greatest and most important thing in your life. Eight times in His Word, the Lord says, Be holy, for I am holy. My question is, are we listening? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for a Holy Spirit that not only empowers us and strengthens us and encourages us, but convicts us when we fall short. And Father, if we're honest about it, we do not have this supreme commitment that we ought to toward our personal holiness. And I pray, Lord God, that that I, Father, that I would renew my commitment. That I would make a covenant with my eyes. That I would make a covenant with my mind. That I would glorify you by the holiness of my walk. And I pray, Father, for your patience and your forgiveness. And I cleave to your spirit to make me the holy man that I need to be. Father, I pray this for my brothers and my sisters here as well. Would you work in our lives, Father? We, we want it to be said of us like it was a church in Rome. That we're known for our obedience. We're known for being generous with food and finances. We're known for the most part for... I believe people think of us as a loving and kind and, and a God-fearing group that loves the Word, loves the Lord, loves the church. Father, may we put in that list that we are known for our obedience to the Word that we say we revere. Father, work in our hearts and minds to make that to that end. Father, I pray for those who are here today, and this has been a difficult message for them. They, they are... They're mired in their sin yet. They do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. If they died at this day, Father, they would spend eternity in hell apart from you, apart from loved ones who have known you. I pray, Lord, that you've spoken to their heart today. They have heard of your Son lifted up once again. They've heard of that. And that you have spoken to their heart, and they'll not resist on this day as they have in the past. They'll not grip the back of that pew, Father, as they have so many other days. But they'll let go. And they'll let go of themselves. And their grip on their own life and their own way of doing things. And they'll yield that to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.